A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello guys, Zach Twomley here. Before we... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In this episode, I just wanted to say a little quick thing about the sound of the audio, more specifically, how loud or how quiet the audio is for these episodes. Now, you might know me as someone who's somewhat a perfectionist, but to be honest, I very rarely actually listen to the old episodes back because I feel like there's no point beating myself up about them if they go bad or go well. However, recently when I did listen, I noticed that the audio was way off to the extent that I had to turn it down because parts of it were too loud and everything else. It's kind of embarrassing, really. I recently changed the way I record by, well, you don't really need to know how I record, but because it's probably boring, but basically I changed the way I record and I think that might have something to do with why certain parts of it seem so loud that your earphones kind of crackle when it gets to that point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep the microphone further away from me and I'm going to turn the actual audio up manually. 
You see, if you don't know what Audacity is or what it looks like, then it's kind of hard to describe why this is different. But hopefully the sound will be better in the future. And I'm sorry it sounds a bit crackly when it gets a bit loud in older episodes. Because this is a podcast, obviously the second most important thing after the research is that the audio sounds right. If the audio is crap, who's going to listen to When Diplomacy Fails? So please do let me know in the future if you think that it doesn't sound good, and at least then I'll know whether or not I have to change it. Also, please do let me know if you think there's an improvement over previous episodes. Maybe you weren't even aware of the fact that it didn't sound quite right. That's reassuring. But maybe you were aware and you just didn't want to tell me because you weren't bothered or whatever. Either way... Please do let me know if you think this sounds like an improvement. And yeah, thanks for listening. And I'll be talking to you all in just a sec. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War, episode 44. Last time, we continued our coverage of the Korean War by following two different threads. The first being Syngman Rhee's troubled regime and the general apathy which many Allied soldiers felt for it, and the second being the march towards peace, which we watched through an Indian lens. Huh, what do you think of that? By the 10th of July, the two sides had sat down for talks at a place called Song. As we'll see in this episode, though, even if both sides claimed to desire peace, peace was by no means the only thing up for grabs. Propaganda victories, the delaying of offensives, the reinforcement of one's own beleaguered lines, these were other reasons to ask for peace, and there were also lessons which the Allies would have to learn about the Communists, one painful experience at a time. It is to the beginning of these talks that we now take our narrative then, the 10th of July, 1951. The song of the week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Facebook. We are on Facebook. We are on a Facebook group, When Diplomacy Fails group. We have a Facebook page, When Diplomacy Fails podcast. If you just cannot get enough of When Diplomacy Fails in audio form, then you know to go to Patreon, of course, patreon.com forward slash When Diplomacy Fails, where you'll get an hour extra content every single month. However, if you want to get more actual written content for When Diplomacy Fails, make sure to connect to us on those two areas on Facebook. Join the group for some pretty interesting discussions. And like the page so that your Facebook news feed is hopefully full of things other than just bad news, boring news, things that you didn't really remember liking but appear anyway. Thanks for all that, Mark Zuckerberg. However, I will say that Facebook can be good. It can be good and it can start good discussions. It is also, which is an important fact for me, free to use. Although, on the same time, I am aware that if I pay for Facebook advertisements... A lot more people see them. I don't want to do that, though, because why would you want to just listen to When Diplomacy Fails after you see an advertisement that promotes, like, a random war poster of some kind? We're doing all sorts of things at the When Diplomacy Fails page. Everything from wartime posters for propaganda to discussions about whether or not the First World War was Germany's fault to 
things that you may not even thought about, but that you see on your Facebook feed and you're like, oh, that's what they're doing. It's kind of hard to describe, but I would recommend you go and like the page. It's nearly 3,000 likes at this point, and we've had it since day one of this podcast. It was the big part of Be Fit, and it was how we grew it so quickly. But now, I'm asking you guys to check it out more. And if you have already liked it, and you're wondering, why isn't it showing up? Well, that's because Facebook's algorithm is crap, and they want to show you things that you probably aren't even all that interested in. For when diplomacy fails to get more exposure, I need you guys to be liking the page and even clicking that see first option so that you're able to see things once we release them. I will be releasing a lot of content through the Facebook page and through the group once we get to the Versailles anniversary project. So if you'd like to keep in touch with the centenaries that are coming up and with what we're talking about in that very weighted series, then make sure that you connect to us in those very important areas. That again, When Diplomacy Fails podcast and when the Flancy fails group. Anyway guys, the song of the week this week is Is There Still Room For Me Beneath The Old Apple Tree by Albert Campbell and Henry Burr, released in 1916. Enjoy it guys, and we will be back of course with episode 44 of The Korean War. Please don't make me wait in vain. I ask you to connect me with a homestead down in Maine. I hate to hold the wire, don't get mad if I complain. I love to hear my sweetheart's voice again. Oh, hell, dear, yes, this is me, I'm many miles away. I'm lonesome and I just called up to Arranging for an armistice during the process of actual fighting, the definition of what the actual powers did in the latter two-thirds of the Korean War, was described by one Pentagon official as One of the most delicate negotiations in human affairs, and it must necessarily be conducted in the strictest secrecy. 
Moreover, ultimate success must depend in some measure upon the willingness of the public to await concrete results, and especially to refrain from violent reactions to incomplete or unfounded myths and rumours. There was good reason to suspect that the Communists wanted peace. The initial success and enthusiasm which accompanied their rapid advances in the winter months had now all but evaporated, and holding the line was the declared goal. This was proving difficult, as the United Nations forces were now better led and better organised, accustomed to life on the front, and appreciative of the challenges therein. The Allied concentration of artillery and the air superiority which guarded Allied positions ensured that the Chinese would have to expend a great deal more men to take a given objective than any of the Allies would. Technological superiority was accompanied by economic superiority, as the Allies were essentially funded by Washington, while the Chinese and their North Korean allies received their material from the Soviets. Unlike the Americans, the Soviets did demand payment from the outset. There would be no IOUs in the communist camp, in spite of the declared sense of ideological togetherness. What was more for Mao, and a fact he came to only very bitterly accept, Stalin had plainly played him. Initially promising air support after a few months had passed, the Soviets managed to delay and delay the issue until finally the best they could do was two squadrons of Soviet volunteers. If captured, these pilots were told to claim that they were ethnic Russians born in Manchuria. Stalin was sympathetic in his cables to Mao, but he was always firm. There could be no question of a widespread distribution of Soviet arms and soldiers to the fighting communists, for if these were discovered, then the United Nations would surely retaliate. Stalin may have been overblowing the issue, as he had done before when he withdrew Soviet advisors to the North Korean People's Army, on the grounds that they couldn't be captured by the West, as this would implicate Moscow. On the other hand, though, Stalin's caution can possibly be explained by his own discovery of NSC-76. Remember that policy document from Washington, which stipulated in stark terms that if the Soviets intervened in any considerable measure in Korea, then a third world war would be considered. Considering what we know of Stalin's vast information network and his legions of informants in the Allied governments, it is indeed possible that he had gotten wind of how seriously the United States would view Soviet intervention in Korea. But then, Stalin had never intended to involve himself in Korea in the first place. Korea had been powered and then launched by Soviet aid and prodding for sure, but Stalin wanted no part in its course. The main use of the conflict, once the initial North Korean offensive had run out of steam, was to draw the Chinese in. Once this was done, and the damage to Sino-American relations was plain, Stalin considered his work done, and anything else to come after the event was merely a bonus. We're at the point in our narrative now when we can reasonably draw upon what we've learned so far from the varied actors in the conflict. In the last episode we saw how, sometimes, certain figures would signal their approval of compromise deals in the UN General Assembly on the private expectation that such a deal would never come to fruition. On the several compromise peace overtures put forward or powered by the Indians, for example, it was the Chinese who generally had the last negative word, and it was the Americans who signalled their approval, knowing full well that the Chinese would, in the end, torpedo it. So it was that by summer 1951, not only were the member states of the United Nations inherently sick of the Korean War, they were also frustrated at the repeated instances of the Chinese stonewalling. In light of this, the proposal of the Soviet delegate for meaningful peace talks must have seemed like a breath of fresh air. As Jacob Malik and his government knew full well, though, the peace talks were to be just as much of a battle 
as the fighting had been. Russian and Chinese sources still disagree on exactly what Stalin promised Mao in order to secure Chinese intervention. The documents thus far available from the Russian archives indicate that Stalin never planned to use his MiG-15s and anti-aircraft forces for anything other than defending Chinese industry and supply lines. However, the Chinese claim that Stalin promised complete air support for their ground forces. In any event, as we know, the Chinese army went into combat against the United States and South Korean troops in late October 1950 without air cover or bomber support. You may remember that Mao had claimed he would pull back large portions of his forces if Soviet air support or other help wasn't forthcoming, but as Stalin well knew, Mao would be strategically tied to defend the line at all costs once he had intervened, and he could never have afforded on a strategic level to move so much men out from the front line. Whatever conclusions we may draw from the murkiness of Sino-Soviet relations, we can deduce a few facts. First, that the Soviet aid to the fighting communists was far below what Mao had either hoped for or cynically expected. Second, Stalin managed to disappoint even Mao's low expectations, and this alleged betrayal by Stalin was a critical point in the eventual breakdown in Sino-Soviet relations. While it is certainly possible that Stalin made promises to the Chinese in Moscow that he later reneged on, there is currently no evidence to suggest that he took any steps to change the military deployments already underway in northeast China. Most Soviet air divisions deployed to China were sent to defend Chinese industrial cities along the western coast, the Beijing area and Manchuria. Only two Soviet air divisions were deployed at any time to defend the airspace over MiG Alley. The first Soviet units deployed to the Andong Air Base in the northeast corner of the peninsula, just over the Yalu River, continued to train Chinese pilots while carrying out their defensive mission along the Yalu River. While they had some pilots in rotation, the Soviet Air Force was demonstrably committed to the bare minimum of defence, and the engagements in MiG Ali, later made famous through the memoirs and media reports of those Allied pilots who took part in these dogfights, were the product of Soviet efforts to keep the war going by protecting the vulnerable communist supply lines over the sensitive Yalu crossing. As far as actually contesting the Allied air superiority though, Stalin left Mao hanging, an act which fostered intense feelings of bitterness, considering the existence of the Sino-Soviet alliance and the clear suffering which the People's Volunteer Army endured under the Allied skies. It was thanks to the chronic absence of air power and the sheer expense of maintaining so many men under arms which compelled Mao to seek a compromise peace in the talks which began on the 10th of July 1951. Bear in mind that by that point, Mao had essentially achieved his objective of establishing a Chinese buffer in North Korea. Kim Il-sung was now a communist leader reliant on Chinese rather than Soviet aid. With this war aim achieved, and with the Allied superiority in force making itself plain during the preceding offensives, Mao determined to make use of the peace talks and reinforce the communist position. This could be done while digging as the diplomats talked, a process which, while blatantly dishonest, did work wonders for the strategic position of the communists, as we'll see. Mao had further reasons for delaying and fighting in the meantime, though. Much like the Allies, it was important that the Communists negotiate from a position of strength, and this strength could only be achieved on the field. Conventional accounts have it that once Mao's commander informed him in February 1951 of the dire strategic situation, Mao only then accepted that total victory was not possible. 
This might sound reasonable, but we should remember that Mao's aim had never been to unify Korea in the first place. A unified peninsula would be perpetually unstable, and it would represent an open sore in Sino-American relations. This thus brings the valid question of why the Chinese advanced past the 38th parallel, even capturing Seoul. If Mao didn't want a unified Korea, then why did he instruct his forces to advance as though they intended to achieve it? To answer that, we must return to the issue of leverage at the bargaining table. Even while the Chinese weren't destined to unite Korea under their auspices, there was no reason why Mao couldn't hope to wrest certain concessions out of the Allies at the bargaining table in return for concessions on his side. What if Seoul was returned to Syngman Rhee's regime in return for the People's Republic of China having a seat on the UN Security Council? Ah, what about that? If the People's Volunteer Army could acquire as much of these bargaining ships as possible, then her negotiators would be in a much better position to dictate to the Allies at an upcoming peace conference. For those that might ask how Mao could have known that peace talks would emerge at all, and that the Allies wouldn't simply have fought his forces all the way down the peninsula until they were evicted from it, thereby achieving the unification of the peninsula, which he did not want, we should bear in mind some facts which we learned from the last 40-something episodes. For starters, peace talks, ceasefires, armistices, and other attempts to halt the Korean War had been in play as early as the conflict began. In the international discussions of the Korean War, we have seen that the Indian delegation to the United Nations, in addition to the British, were highly active in suggesting ways to bring the war at least to a temporary end. Also, we should bear in mind that in the case of several of these overtures, the Chinese from November 1950 had quashed most of them. If Mao had been rejecting these overtures until his position in North Korea was secure, then he may also have been under the impression that he held the balance of power on the Korean Peninsula. After having rejected so many peace offerings or efforts to talk it out, Mao may have believed that he held the diplomatic cards and that he would be able to call for a peace conference when he desired it. This opportunity went away, of course, with the onset of Ridgeway's successful offensives, and even while the Chinese did hold their own remarkably well under these circumstances, it was clear that their initial sharpness, and therefore their diplomatic superiority in the negotiations, had been significantly blunted. Under these circumstances, if Mao was to suggest or agree to peace overtures, then it could be said that the Chinese were the weaker power, and thus the Allies would seek to wrest more concessions out of them at the peace table. Even though they were hurting then, and even though much of Mao's bargaining chips had been lost by summer 1951, he was still resolute in the view that for the sake of his regime's image, he could not request a ceasefire. It was almost certainly no coincidence then that the Soviet delegate Jacob Malik came forward with a peace proposal, after all, on the 23rd of June 1951, a month after the Chinese offensive had stalled and the military initiative was clearly back with the Allies. This gave Mao three great opportunities. First, Malik's suggestion for peace meant that the Chinese wouldn't be seen to be suggesting such an approach, and thus the impression of the Chinese will to fight on could be preserved. Second, the way in which the peace overtures were proposed gave the Chinese the chance to make additional demands. Between the 23rd of June and 10th of July, one topic, that of location for the discussions about the peace, was emphasised above all. Third, this option to choose where the talks would take place and the selection of Kaesong, a place in communist hands, 
gave Mao the opportunity to rest, if not practical concessions, then a propaganda victory. Perhaps more important than these three considerations, though, was the starker strategic fact of the day. By engaging in peace overtures, any UN offensives such as those launched in spring would be put on hold. This would give the Chinese ample time to reinforce their lines, a tactic which would demonstrate its sinister success by the end of the year. So Mao had many reasons to wait for and then to accept the Soviet peace talks. Among his own domestic reasons was the well-known fact in communist circles that the Korean War was a severe drain on the resources and patience of the Allies, and that the initial enthusiasm which greeted the chance to intervene and save the Seoul regime had been replaced with disinterest, with apathy and shame at Rhee's excesses, and with confusion over the vested interests of the varied powers involved. The American public, once it got over the perception that the Truman administration wasn't doing enough to combat the Chinese, subsequently, over the next few months and years following January 1951, pretty much lost interest in what was going on in such a far-off land. In addition, there was the Allied experience as a whole, which in terms of the Commonwealth and British interventions, was felt as even more of a drag, and certainly more of an expense, than it had been in Washington. Morale had been increased by Ridgway's offensives, but the gaffes committed by Rhee, in particular when he declared that the British and Commonwealth soldiers were no longer welcome in his country, if you'll remember that chestnut from last time, yeah, this really exacerbated the problem. The British government, for one, found the costs of rearmament almost impossible to bear, and Clement Attlee's Labour government would in fact succumb to the pressures put upon it by Winston Churchill's resurgent Conservatives, as the Netflix series The Crown has demonstrated. It's important to bear in mind that the Communists were aware of their foes' deficiencies in morale, and that Kim Il-sung and Mao Zedong suspected that they could gain from the peace table a range of concessions that wouldn't otherwise have been gained on the battlefield, thanks to the lack of stomach the Allies seemed to have for the fight. This assumption would in time prove incorrect. As the years 1952-53 would demonstrate, the Allies were more than willing to engage in bloody fights on the field and in the diplomatic sphere for their perceived rights, and the struggle to gain some kind of leverage over the peace table by talking and fighting never truly vanished from the mind of the UN command. In that first month of the peace negotiations, though, Mao could believe that he had much to gain and little to lose by dragging out the proceedings. Thanks to his Soviet ally, Beijing would be able to make full use of the opportunities offered by the peace talks, and Mao could emerge from them largely unscathed at home, because he had been sure never to show weakness throughout their course. In addition, where once he had held a strong reluctance towards intervention, and thereafter only limited objectives to alter North Korea's political allegiance once intervention became necessary, Mao was soon alerted to the benefits to his own regime, which a moral, diplomatic, or even propaganda victory over the Allies would have. As the historian Chen Zhan has noted, underlying the attempt to transform the Korean War into some kind of victory for his regime was Mao's desire to transform the challenge and threat brought about by the Korean crisis into the dynamic for enhancing the Communist Party's control over China's state and society, as well as to promote new China's international prestige and influence. Mao and his comrades hoped to see the revival of China's central position in the international affairs of East China. 
So Mao Zedong learned as he went along in the course of the Korean War, and he came to see the conflict as a great opportunity to stick it to the Allies and buoy up his own regime. No example fits this policy better than the behaviour undertaken by the Chinese-led delegation at Kaesong, when the two sides sat down for a face-to-face meeting at last on the 10th of July, 1951. Having established the necessary background detail, it is to this weighted scene which we now turn our attention. To sit down with these men and deal with them as representatives of an enlightened and civilised people is to deride one's own dignity and to invite the disaster their treachery will bring upon us. These were the words of General Ridgway in a cable that the commander sent to Washington when news of the peace talks were beginning to become known. Had Ridgway had free reign, he would likely have chosen to pursue the clear advantage which the Allies now had. Understanding that the political will of both Washington and her allies was no longer present, though, Ridgway, quite unlike his predecessor, bowed in public to the authority of the civilian government. It was one of the reasons why Ridgway would later be seen as such a respected, considerate figure, especially in comparison to the independently-minded MacArthur. In this case, though, Ridgway's scepticism about the communist peace talks were to prove unfortunately correct. It is a strange fact now that in late June 1951, the UN command saw no great problem in the Chinese proposal of Song for talks. It did not seem to cross their minds at the time that the arrival of the UN delegation under the white flag of truce before a parade of Chinese and North Korean soldiers would be presented to the peoples of these two countries not as a peace conference, but as the arrival of the UN allies to arrange their surrender. Indeed, for the first instance of peace talks, all that the communists seemed genuinely interested in was the creation of a great propaganda victory, which, to the immense disgust of the Allied representatives present, they easily acquired. The UN command delegation was led by the US Navy's Vice Admiral, a man named Turner Joy, while the communist delegation was led by the North Korean general Nam Il, who received strict instructions from Beijing. If the usage of propaganda was distasteful, then it quickly became apparent once Joy's delegation sat down to talk that the communists were not here to actually make any genuine progress. As per Mao's instructions, the objective was first to delay the Allies and then to frustrate and exhaust their negotiators with excruciating details. Every word spoken by the communist negotiators was laced with references to the murderer Ri, or Chiang Kai-shek, otherwise known as your puppet on Taiwan. Every basic procedural detail, even the necessary opening statements and introductions, were slowed by deliberately winding and unnecessary pronouncements to the corrupt and spineless nature of the capitalist scoundrels. Before long, the talks were dragged into what Dean Acheson referred to as an endless propaganda morass. Did the communists want peace at all? All over the summer of 1951, this state of affairs continued as the patience and endurance of the Allied delegation ebbed away. A low point, amusing as it may be for us now, came on the 10th of August 1951, when the two delegations stared across the table at each other in complete silence for two hours and eleven minutes an act by the communists to signify their rejection of the UN statement which had preceded that day's talks. 
added to these tactics were the laundry list of fanciful complaints against the Allied delegation and the droning insistence that the Korean people be freed of all capitalist influence. By the 22nd of August 1951, it was plain to the communists where the United Nations was willing and unwilling to compromise. After wringing every conceivable propaganda advantage from the talks, Nam Il, the North Korean lead negotiator, placed the cherry on top when he abruptly left the conference at Kaesong after claiming that the Americans had tried to murder his delegation. The traditional narrative of the peace talks at Kaesong and their transfer later on to the no-man's-land town on Panmunjom puts it that the communists deliberately stalled for the sake of military gains. This, as we'll see, is a view which holds a great amount of weight, but it is also worth considering that the communists had reason to be outraged. Contrary to what the division of the peninsula to this day may suggest, the Allies were not suggesting in the first round of the Quezon talks at least that the 38th parallel be the new border of the two states. Instead, as Dean Acheson himself would later recall, the Russians and the Chinese could well have been surprised, chagrined, and even given cause to feel tricked when at Kaesong we revealed a firm determination as a matter of major principle not to accept the 38th parallel as the armistice line. Arriving at Kaesong with the clear intention to wring some healthy propaganda victories from the meeting, the communists also seemed to have expected that the Allies would suggest this line, which they eventually settled on, as the demarcation line of North and South Korea. When the Allies demonstrated their determination not to accept this line, it certainly angered those communists who had taken it for granted that any peace deal would return Korea to its pre-war status quo. As the historian James Matray noted, the United States had insisted on confining the negotiations purely to military matters, referring to the parallel as an arbitrary line without political significance. The communists, Acheson speculated, may have viewed the selection of a different demarcation line as a political decision. Denying any ulterior motives, Acheson concluded that the communist side would never imagine that what appeared to be trickery was wholly inadvertent on our part. The Chinese and North Koreans indeed may have seen themselves as victims of a classic bait-and-switch. Thereafter, they adopted an angry and obstinate posture that was reciprocated, permanently poisoning the Korean truce talks. Poisoned indeed, but whatever the reason for the lack of progress at Kaesong, one cannot deny that the communists used the breathing space to make great military gains. It is for this reason that I tend to agree with the consensus, especially since the communists were to repeat this tactic of talking while fighting to improve their position again within the year. While the people had talked, the soldiers had largely stood back, thus confirming Ridgeway's fears. The communists had been stalling and disingenuously leading the Allies on. It appeared that they had no intentions of making peace under the current circumstances. After this experience at Kaesong, Ridgeway became determined to change these circumstances and to hike up the pressure by launching a new offensive towards several key communist positions. Despite the lull in fighting, which had given them the chance to prepare for a new Allied offensive, the Chinese preparations were not sufficient to really slow the Allies down, and by the middle of October, General Ridgeway's forces had advanced nearly 20 miles north of the 38th parallel, at the cost of massive Chinese and North Korean losses. The superiority in technology and firepower had evidently done wonders for the United Nations Army, as the Communists were plainly now on the back foot. 
Malus instructed his officials to begin the talks again, and significantly, this process was begun on the 7th of October 1951. By the 25th of October, Allied and Communist delegations were once again face-to-face, this time at the genuinely neutral site of Panmunjom in no man's land. This time, there was to be no Communist propaganda victory. Again though, rather than genuinely intend to close the war, what Mao aimed for this time around was to reinforce his position. As the 8th Army's commander was instructed by a weary ridgeway to hold back from launching any significant offensives so long as the delegations talked, the communist forces engaged in one of the most striking campaigns of simultaneous diplomatic dishonesty and military activity yet seen in the war. By the time the communists had wasted another two months of the Allies' time, the Chinese and North Korean forces had created a reinforced line 155 miles in length, supported by extensive artillery batteries and garrisoned by an unprecedented 855,000 men, most of whom had been shipped into the area while the two sides had talked. It was a strikingly dishonest tactic, but in the circumstances of the Korean War in late 1951, where the Allies were known to take peace overtures seriously, it worked. By the 27th of December 1951, the Communists had established a front line which would be impossible to break through without the kind of substantial efforts that the Allied governments did not wish to make any longer. During the course of that second stage of negotiations, initiated by the Chinese, the Allies had offered a peace deal which made it plain that they had no interests in either North Korea or Manchurian land grabs, and that they would settle for an independent South Korea in a peace treaty. While this deal was of course ignored by the dallying communists, it was taken note of. Buoyed by this demonstrated willingness to give ground, the communists knew that the Allies would not be wholly interested in resuming a large-scale offensive, even if the public or the home governments approved of it. The strategic implications of holding North Korea were proving a great deterrent to those that had originally argued for a second advance towards the Yalu River. Not everyone was convinced of this, though. One such figure who maintained the need for the Allies to demonstrate their tenacity and determination in the face of these challenges was their commander, General Ridgway. I have a strong inner conviction, Ridgway wrote in September 1951, that more steel and less silk, more forthright American insistence on the unchallengeable logic of our position, will yield the objectives for which we honourably contend. With all my conscience, I urge that we stand firm. Ridgway was by no means looking for a second advance to the Yalu, but he was of the opinion that the weariness with the Korean War and the Allied home governments was taking its toll on the morale and on the reputation of the soldiers in Korea. So long as it was known that the Allies wanted peace, and so long as the media organs of the different countries used such phrases as let's bring the boys home and the war-weary troops, it would be an uphill battle to get the communists to believe that the war posed any distinct strategic threat to their positions any longer. Indeed, over the months where peace was discussed, July to November 1951, some 60,000 casualties were endured by the United Nations, a number which included some 22,000 Americans. The communists seemed to be increasing their air capabilities, which would force the Allies to reduce their bombing campaigns to nighttime raids only by autumn 1951. In addition, with the absence of any offensive planned on the same scale as Killer, Ripper or Piledriver in the months before, it seemed like the soldiers on the front lines were not waiting for battle, but waiting for some kind of peace. 
in these circumstances, without any overarching focus to distract themselves with, apathy towards the war, not to mention the Korean people, skyrocketed among the soldiers on both sides, with the Allies, of course, proving the most vocal, owing to the lack of extensive censorship found in the North. Since the UN command had renounced their old objective of unifying Korea and seemed content to settle for a free and independent South, it did seem wrong to just sit where they were and wait it out. Yet once the Communists reinforced their lines in late 1951, the front line was essentially set for the next 18 months. With some exceptions, this was to be the front line from which the peace would be settled in July 1953. In the meantime, of course, there was much to be done to reach some kind of better outcome than such a dreary, dissatisfying armistice. From this point, in 1951 to late 1952, the Allies stepped up their bombing campaign and intensified their protection and pursuit of air superiority. These moves gave the Allies something to do and provided their war correspondents with something to talk about but in terms of the overall strategic objectives for the war, they actually achieved quite little. By December 1952, as the talks continued to stagnate and the skirmishes populated the war-torn front line, the Chinese moved some 1.2 million men into position with the express purpose of holding the line. Thus reinforced to a point effectively beyond the capacity of the Allies to properly challenge, Mao knew that his forces could now use this security at the peace table to wrest some actual concessions out of the Allies. Thanks to their chicanery and dishonesty, the Communists had managed to turn the tide away from the looming defeat which seemed due by June 1951. Mao had thus created a scenario which, while far from ideal in terms of its expenses and implications for the Chinese position in world affairs, in strategic terms, it granted the People's Republic the opportunity to leverage its advantages over the Allies. As the Truman administration sought to wearily conclude this conflict, in light of the approved defence budgets which the President had originally sought, it was becoming clear that a fresh pair of eyes, if not a totally new approach, would be necessary if the war was to ever conclusively end. So it was that the 1952 US presidential election approached, with Dwight D. Eisenhower's pledge ringing through the ears of every war-weary American citizen. Elect me, Eisenhower claimed, and I will go to Korea. Next time, we'll see how the advent of a new presidential administration closed a page on American history. I hope you'll join me for that, but until then, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been the Korean War, episode 44. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.